Lord, we want to thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, what this weekend represents for this country. We so value our uh, freedom. We value those who have given their lives to achieve that and maintain it. And ultimately, we, we have to run to the cross and consider our ultimate slavery to this thing called sin and the liberty that you've given us in the work of the cross and the one who gave up his life for us. And um, Lord, I pray that as we remember those folks who have gone before us or gone beside us, who have given it all, uh, that ultimately we'll run to the cross. Pray that, uh, pray for the other churches in this community this morning, Lord. I pray especially for First Baptist Church and Terry Blankenship, just a burden for Terry and for his family uh, to adore Christ and enjoy Christ and for his teaching and preaching and pastoring and shepherding to come from that resource and for him to be used as a tool for your glory. Lord, we pray for First Baptist Church and for the other churches in this community that will not rob your glory. That even for something like patriotism and being an American, that will ultimately place following Christ and being a Christian as paramount and most important. We pray that the people that gather corporately in the name of Christ in this community this morning, that we will ultimately lift up Christ and enjoy His finished work. <coughs> I pray for First Baptist, Lord, that we will be truly teammates with them in a sweet work. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray for a attentiveness, a divine attentiveness that's beyond anything that, um, that I could muster, anything that a listener could muster. I pray for work of the Holy Spirit in these next few minutes that you'll make me really small and insignificant, and maybe even foolish, that your glory can be on display, a truth can be revealed, that a gospel can be enjoyed, and your people will grow more and more captivated with the finished work of Jesus. Lord, we turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. I should turn off my mic for that. Let me just give you one brief heads up before we jump into this message. We're going to jump into John chapter 13. A brief encouragement. If you need dancing girls and acrobats to pay attention, you're in trouble in the next few minutes because I got no dancing girls. I got no acrobats. This is going to be a very, very challenging message for you to get. So if you don't have a Bible in your hand, if you didn't bring one, that's okay. If you don't even own one, that's okay because that blue one in the seat back in front of you is now yours. You can grab it. You can put your name in the front. You can grab a pen and mark that thing up. Own that bad boy. That's the words of life. And today is where we're going. We're just going to be neck deep in this word today. So let's start in John chapter 13. <clears throat> Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, this Jesus, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my, also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Pete, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the Spirit will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I receive, or I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel... Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give some to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. What we did last week that we're going to do in an abbreviated form this morning is we took this board kind of a crime board you've seen these shows that take a um, a poster board or some sort of bulletin board and they put the bad guy's name up front or the missing person or whatever they put him up top and then they start putting facts on the board and they start to connect the dots that's what we're going to do in these next few minutes we're just going to throw the facts on the board and then we're going to walk away with some life-changing truth hopefully here's the first fact from verse 2 It says in our versions, it says during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. I shared with you last week, I'm not going to go into this. If you you didn't get this last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. The best early manuscripts point toward a translation that goes like this. The devil had already made up his mind that Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, would betray him. So the devil had a bullseye on Judas. That's the first thing we can put on the board right next to his picture. Second thing, we know that Jesus washed his feet. Jesus modeled love for his enemies. He put it on the board. Bam. We also know that Judas was not clean. It says there in verse 10 and 11. It says, and you are clean, Pete, but not every one of you. 
For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. This guy you've got to appreciate, this Judas, had likely cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. He was sent with the others to preach. So he had likely preached Christ. His hands, these very hands that are going to betray him, that are going to accept the money from the Pharisees, are likely hands that also broke loaves and fishes on a hillside next to the Sea of Galilee. This guy had walked with the ministry for three years, but yet he was not clean. He sat there and had his feet washed by Jesus Christ, but he was not cleansed by the work of the cross. We also know from verse 18 that he was not chosen. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Judas is not chosen. We also know that Jesus knew well in advance who was to betray him just from that passage, that the scripture will be fulfilled. The truth had already been exposed 500 years, 1,000 years, 1,500 years earlier, scripture that points to the reality that someone would betray the Christ. And Judas fits the bill. We also know that he had eaten the bread of the ministry for three years. He had been part of the sweetest ministry that ever existed before or since. By the alpha preacher, the alpha shepherd, he had eaten the bread of the ministry. We know also from verse 21 that Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, say to you, one of you will betray me. That this king of kings and lord of lords is troubled by this reality that Judas would betray him. Put it on the board. We also know that Jesus knew well in advance he would betray him. Earlier on in the book of John, he gives great detail about that. We also know from verse 22, it says the disciples looked at one another. This is after Jesus says, somebody's going to betray me. They look at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. This alarming reality that this guy that they spent three years with, 24 and 7, who'd likely slept on the rock right next to him for three years, had shared meals together, 24 and 7 for three years, and they didn't know who he was. They didn't know who the betrayer was. I'd like to think that Judas wore black, had a snarl on his face, just looked like a, um, a bad guy. I had these toys that I played with when I was a kid. I had Johnny West and all these other guys. There was The bad guy was Sam Cobra, and he was bad. I'd like to think that he looked like Sam Cobra, but I don't think he did. This guy looked like he was trusted. In fact, he was the treasurer. Insert organization X, and you're going to put the guy that you trust in charge of money. So this guy was maybe one of the most trusted among them. And then in verse 27, it says that Satan entered into him. And Jesus turned to, I don't know if he's turned to Satan or if he's turned to Judas or maybe both, and he says, what you're going to do, do quickly. Put, a, put those on the board. And then lastly, we know from verse 30 that after receiving the morsel of bread, this Judas, who'd walked with him for three years, that looked just like the rest of them, maybe the most trusted among them, went out, and it was night. I love John's writing, how he communicates. John's not a fact guy. Luke is the fact guy. Fact, F-A-C-T. You think I'm saying fat. He's like, how do you know Luke was fat? Fact. Luke is the detail guy. Man, look how long the book of Luke is. It's just full of all these details. John was not a detail guy. 
Yet he ends this, this, these details about Judas with, and it was night. I can't help but think that, Judas, that, that John, as he wrote these words, likely 60 years after this event happened, that he wasn't still dealing with heartbreak and heartache. Any of you that have ever had someone leave the table, whether it's a friend or a family member, leave the table of a marriage, leave the table of a family, leave the table of a ministry, you know the heartache I'm talking about. And you too could say, it was night. This must have been a painful time for John. Some additional details we know is that in the wee hours that Judas came back with the priests, the Pharisees, some of the priests and Pharisees, some of the Sadducees, and some soldiers to apprehend Christ at the Garden of Gethsemane. We also know that he betrayed him with a kiss, put them all on the board. And lastly, we know that Judas was so overwhelmed with guilt, and I'm going to call it worldly regret. It's not repentance. Those are two different things. We're going to talk about that next week. He was overwhelmed with worldly regret, so much so that he takes the money back, he throws it at their feet, and then he goes and kills himself. We put all those details on the board. And where I want to go this morning is to consider that John is the illustration, the alpha illustration of what's called apostasy. I mentioned it to you last week and I said, listen, this is not some lame academic word. This is a word that all of us should be acquainted with, this word apostasy. If you did your homework, you're familiar with this. If you didn't, I'm going to help you with your homework. Apostasy, just just defined right from from dictionary.com, the abandonment or renunciation of a political or religious belief. And in our case, it would be faith in Christ. Abandonment. Renunciation. Other key words that I found were the words desertion. He deserted the table. Another word I found is the word departure, which that's what he did. (laughs) He walked out of the room and left the table. Another word I found is to forsake. That's apostasy, is to forsake. And interestingly enough, another word I found is the word renegade. To go rogue. To go renegade, to go operate on your own plan is to depart from the table. And this Judas, man, he demonstrates departure and abandonment from the table. He is the alpha premium illustration of apostasy. He ate the bread of the ministry for three years. He was not chosen. We're also going to deal with that next week. He had an appointment with betrayal. He had a bullseye on him. And even the sweetest ministry that has ever existed before or since couldn't turn him. He is the picture of apostasy. Turn to the book of 1 John. In these next few minutes, we're going to gnaw on a passage of Scripture that I think we can't get in John's head. This is the same writer of the book of John. Likely the same writer of the book of Revelation. We can't get in John's head to know what John is thinking. All we can see is what John says. But I want to show you just in the next couple of minutes a couple of things that I think point towards some words here in the book of 1 John that I think are a commentary on Judas leaving the table. And let me kind of acquaint you with something before we continue. 
The way this sermon is going to unfold, the way it is unfolding right now, is that I bet a lot of you are kind of thinking about this guy, Judas. As it continues, you, you may start to think about some other people that may have betrayed the faith, some names that may come to mind, some people that you may know of prominence, or some friends that you know have left the table, or some family members. So it'll go from Judas, and then it'll go to some people that you know, and then I'm going to go ahead and warn you, then it's going to go to, hey, uh, let me look down the pew. Maybe the next person that betrays is sitting with us this morning. And then hopefully where it's going to end up is looking in a mirror. So don't disengage this message just because you think we're talking about somebody else. Watch how this thing unfolds in the next few minutes. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. We're just looking at two verses here in the book of 1 John. I'll give you page numbers. I know it's kind of late. You probably found it by now. Page 1021 in your pew Bible. If you got some other Bible or a NAS, I'm sorry. If you got ESV, that'll work for you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John writes to believers. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're all not, that all are not of us. Now, let me take you to a couple of indicators to me that tell me that John, again, I, we can't get in John's head. But a couple of signs that tell me that John is likely thinking back 60 years earlier to what he saw develop in the upper room with Judas and what he saw in the remaining hours, the final hours of Christ's life up into the cross in Judas. I think he's got Judas on his mind. Here's a couple of indicators. First of all, in John chapter 12 and really frequently throughout the book of John, Jesus is referring to his time. Up to John chapter 12, he's saying, my hour hadn't come yet. My time hadn't come yet. It's not time yet. And then in John chapter 12, he says, now is the hour. Now is the time. And then here in 1 John chapter 2 verse 18, he says, it is the last hour. Same language. It is the last hour. He says it again at the end of that verse. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He's connecting. I think there's a connection between the last hour of Christ and the last hour of what he perceives as the faith, the people of God continuing in the journey of faith. Something else that's an indicator, over there in John chapter 13, a passage that we just read, that long passage, it ended with, and he went out and it was night. And then here in 1 John, he says here in verse 19, they went out from us. Now, went out, I'd like to think that this is some kind of high-speed Greek word that's only used twice in the Bible, and it's there and over in John chapter 13. It's not that streamlined, not that cool. It's just they went out. But it's not so common that John uses it all over the place. And the same language, the same sort of context where it sounds like someone is leaving a table, someone is departing a ministry, and it's the last hour, tells me that he's got this on his mind as he's dealing with these antichrists. So what I want to do in these next couple minutes is unpack 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. I've been trying to figure out, am I preaching 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19 this morning, or am I preaching John chapter 13? And the answer is yes. 
So let's do it. First of all, children. There's obviously an affection there where John is referring to these people, these believers, as his own children. He says, this is the last hour. If you're acquainted with your New Testament, you know that frequently writers will refer to things like that, indicating that they must have thought that Christ was to return in their lifetime. I think that John was thinking that. And I believe that believers over the ages have thought the same thing. He's going to return in my lifetime. And here's, what I, here's the way to discern and interpret these references to the last hour. Consider these things. Time marked off so consistently, the redemptive story where God is unfolding this redemptive plan marked off so consistently up until the cross. Some people have dated the flood about 2500 B.C. We date Abraham about 2000 B.C. We date Moses about 1500 B.C. We date David about 1000 B.C. You see 500 year increments. I mean, that's roundabout. 500 B.C. is the Babylonian exile. And then zero is Jesus. This redemptive pattern that, that unfolds almost like a march step, like they're just in step, and then it's bam, bam, bam. And then the cross, and then psh, nothing. <laughs> 2,000 years of everybody going, it's the last hour. It's the last hour. It's the last hour. How do we reckon with that? How do we deal with that? Has he forgotten us? Should we sit back on flowery beds of ease and say it hadn't happened for 2,000 years? Or how should this impact the saints right now? Listen to these words from a guy named John Henry Newman in the 1800s. This explains it so beautifully. Remember, if you're lazy and you need dancing girls, you're bumming. If you're engaging and you're hungry and you want to eat something that will impact tomorrow and next week, then engage with me. Listen to what he says in dealing with this the last hour. He says, for so it was that up to Christ's coming in the flesh, the course of things ran straight towards that end. 2,500 years. 2,000 years B.C., Abraham. 1,500 years B.C., Moses. 1,000 years B.C., David. 500 years B.C., Babylonian exile. The course of things ran straight toward that end, nearing it by every step. You hear him in step? But now, under the gospel, that course has altered its direction. As regards his second coming, and it runs not toward that end, but along that end, and on the brink of it. And it is at all times near that great event, which did it run toward it, it would at once run into it. Christ, then, is ever at our doors. Kind of old English, a little bit, not really bad, but you may have had a difficult time with that. Let me unpack it for you and let me explain it to you. Christ's return is the next event in the redemptive story. All these other things, flood or creation, flood, Abraham, Moses, David, Babylonian exile, Christ. The next event, now that he's at the Father's right hand, is his return. It is the very next thing that's going to happen. It's all that left, and the reality is he could show at any time. You may be a student of Revelation, and you say, oh, no, the signs aren't there. I can't tell you how often I've recognized that Jews didn't recognize prophecy that was being fulfilled right in front of them until afterward, after the fact. They look back and go, well, yeah, there it was all the while. I wonder, it may be unfolding in our lifetime. We may be in the middle of this story, this end time unfolding right now. 
So it's as if the redemptive story moved at these 500-year increments straight away through Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets. And then at Christ's cross and ascension, it turned and it eases now next to the cliff. It's moving toward the cliff for thousands of years. And there's movement. You see things marked off. And then we've turned next to the cliff. And now we're walking along the cliff of Christ's return. And he can, we can fall over the cliff at any moment. Christ can come back at any moment. So God's people live in view of that cliff. Realizing it is indeed the last hour. Because the next step is the imminent return of Christ. It's the next part of the redemptive story. So, we too are in our last hour, here 2,000 years later. We can climb into this and read this that John wrote and realize he wasn't wrong. And we're not wrong to consider we are in our last days. We are in our last hour. And what he says here is he's writing to his children, to believers. In the last hour, he says, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. He's referring to the Antichrist. If you've studied Revelation at all, you know that this beast is spoken of in Revelation chapter 13. It's spoken of other places. Judas is a prototype of that. He's a prototype of this Antichrist. In John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus refers to him as the son of destruction. And then later on, Paul, when he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, he refers to the man of lawlessness. In chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he refers to the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Judas is a prototype of the Antichrist to come. This overt, in your face, I'm Antichrist. Now, we can get all wrapped up in the sensationalism of that, but I want to move on to the next statement. He says, so now, many antichrists have come. He says, the antichrist, the antichrist is coming, but now, many antichrists have come. In the last hour, there in that context, he says, there's many antichrists here. So what's he dealing with there? What he's dealing with is not someone who is anti-Christ, but in context, he's dealing with somebody who is pseudo-Christ. That's all the difference in the world between anti-Christ, because the anti-Christ is overt. In your face, I'm against Christ. The pseudo-Christ, and this is how we can appreciate this in context, it says, they went out from us. He's referring to these antichrists. So this antichrist was once one of us. But he was a pseudo-Christ. And he went out from us. These are imposters of the faith. Given the context that they were once of them, this is the direction this is leaning here to pseudo-Christ. This is dealing with a lying pretender. And this is why you have to realize 2,000 years later, this still has relevance for us. In fact, it may have more relevance for us. I'll explain that in a moment. If there were plenty of antichrists then, I wonder how many there are now. Pseudo-Christs. What this is, this is a lying pretender with a message that makes much of them. A pseudo-Christ, a functional Christ. Look at me. I'll be your savior. Look at you. You can be your own savior. We're surrounded by antichrists, potentially. Pseudo-Christ. 
Christ. This is a lying pretender with a message that makes much of them or makes much of anything but Christ. We dealt with this last week. The glory thief. A pseudo-Christ is anybody that makes much of anything but Christ. These guys aren't active in the world, and they're not overtly against Christ, the pseudo-Christ. These guys are involved in perversions of Christianity among us. In John's day, this is first century Christianity, there were already, it's like in 90 AD, something like that, there are already many antichrists, many are many pseudo-Christs. My experience with perversions and and false teachings is that these things spread naturally like weeds and like a virus. They don't need help. They don't need fertilizer to grow. So given that 2,000 years have passed or 1,900 years have passed since there were many antichrists in this context, why wouldn't we expect that there are many perversions of the faith now? (laughs) How could we possibly think that we're more pure now 2,000 years later than they were then? We can be completely blind to the pseudo-Christ among us. This is why I begin each message in praying for another church. It's not reactively. I don't hear that something's going on in another church. I say, pray for them. Oh, man, they're having trouble. I'm praying that they'll be true, that they'll not be glory thieves, that they'll preach a message that's not putting man at the center. That that pastor is out of the way being poured out, spent, that he's a fool for Christ. That people don't think too much of him. That that message has put Christ at center. That's what we're praying for for other churches. And I would hope that they would pray for us that we wouldn't pervert the faith or subvert the faith or steal glory from Jesus Christ with a message that makes much of us. Because what that is, that is pseudo-Christ. Here's a new word I made up this week. It's a good one, too. Pseudo-Christic. This sounds almost like a real word, doesn't it? That message that makes much of man is pseudo-Christic. And why would we possibly think that we're immune to that 2,000 years later when he says there's many of it, much of it, right now, 1,900 years ago? So, that's all background. Here's how John educated them on how to recognize the pseudo-Christ. He gave them some tools. He gave them some goods and some wares to try and figure out who were these pseudo-Christs. Their diagnostic instruments, their litmus tests, or insert whatever tool you've ever thought of to try and figure something out, to try and test something. That's what these are. And that's what continues in the next verse, in verse 19. He says, these antichrists, these pseudo-Christs, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Here's the thing we've got to appreciate about Judas's departure from the table, is that that was the tell. The tell of what Judas was is that he got up and left the table. <laughs> Pretty simple, isn't it? He departed the people of God. He left the table. And the antichrist and the pseudo-christ of John's day revealed themselves by their departure from the table. And that's the way people are revealed and the tell shows up here 2,000 years later too. Pretty simple, isn't it? They depart the table. Their departure is pseudo-christic. Their departure 
Simple departure from the table is antichristic. And here's the reality. You've got to appreciate that someone has sat in the table for a little while and that they get up and leave after a while. You've got to appreciate that the tell, it shows up in time. Time is the real indicator of who the pseudo-Christs are and who the antichrists are. The counterfeits are revealed in time. Glory thieves show up in months and years. And they reveal and rear their ugly heads. And it's only time that reveals the heart and the motives. Jesus spoke to this when he was speaking about the Pharisees. He said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Speaking of their hypocrisy, he says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that it will not be known. They'll show up in time. We'll figure out who they are and what they're about in time. There's nothing concealed that won't be eventually disclosed. All things will be revealed. That passage goes on to say even your thoughts will be shouted. (laughs) Hello, bad news. Even the things that you say in private, the things that you and your wife talk about, running other people down, that's going to be shouted from the rooftops. All will be revealed, and the revelation of the disingenuine for us, is their departure from the table. It's a great diagnostic instrument to try and figure out who's here for real. The passage continues. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Those who are of us continue with us. So the first part is in a negative sense. To try and figure out who's not of us is the one who has departed from us. So the one who is of us continues with us. It's not flashy, is it? There's nothing sexy about that. There's nothing spectacular about that. It's just, well, they continue. (laughs) Their behinds are still plopped at that table. They're still gnawing on the nourishment that Christ provides. That's the tale of being truly his. And Judas did not continue with them. In his case, he departed for money. We spent some time in Matthew chapter 13 a few years ago, and uh, we considered a parable there in Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is this series of parables. They're called the kingdom of God parables. And they just tell people, the, the reader, the one who gnaws on it, they help you understand how things work. And one of those parables has to do with sowing. He says, a sower goes out into the field and sows, and he sows some seed, and some of it goes on wayward soil. This is the path, the beaten path. Some of it goes in rocky soil, which is shallow. And some of it goes into thorny soil. And then yet some of it goes into good, rich, healthy soil. He goes on to interpret that and explain that and expose that as the wayward soil being the seed that that hits on this uncultivated ground where the birds, being Satan, comes and grabs that seed and it never finds purchase. And then the rocky soil is the shallow stuff that doesn't have deep roots. So when the sun comes out, it just scorches it and burns it up. And that would be tribulation or distress or difficulty of the faith. That's the sun coming out and scorching it. But then that third soil is the thorny soil. It's weedy soil. Where seed hits this soil that looks just like the rest of the soil. 
But turns out there was a bunch of seed for weed in there too. So when the proper seed came up, it sprouted and looked like, hey man, great, we've got life. But turns out there's weeds surrounding it and the weeds come out too and they choke that soil. And the way they choke it is the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. In five years I've seen it over and over again. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches draw people from the table. That's what happened with Judas. The deceitfulness of riches drew him from the table. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. That's the good soil. There's no cares of the world. There's no deceitfulness of riches. There's no tribulation that can scorch it. Man, it's there. That behind is plopped. You can't, you can't wrestle that person from the table because they got kung fu moves, man, and they're hitting you in the face, in the throat. Get away from me. I'm stuck at this table. I'm not getting up. The one who endures to the end will be saved. He shared that in the context of the end times, the context of suffering, where the people of God will be beaten, where the people of God will be betrayed by their own family members, where the people of God will be hated. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So it's the one who sticks is the one who's saved. Now, this is not because salvation is the reward for sticking. This is because sticking is the hallmark of the saved. It's the tattoo. You pull their arm up and you go, sticking. I'm not getting up. Nothing in the world, no care of the world will draw me from this table. Opportunity for promotion, opportunity to work every Sunday when the people of God gather, no thanks. I don't need that money because the people of God are at the table. That's just one example. Sounds like I've got a soapbox there. It's no soapbox, just an example I see often. But the one who sticks will be saved. Not because salvation is the reward for persevering, but because perseverance is the hallmark of the saved like wool is to a sheep. As a sheep has wool, the saved stick. You can't get me from this table. Those who are of us continue with us. Those who are of us stay with us. It's not, all, it's not infrequent that I hear someone sharing their faith or sharing the faith of their family or their family members, and I hear comments that go along the lines of, and I, we've addressed this before, I'm not belittling this, I just want to shed light on this. Well, they're speaking of someone who's no longer in the faith and say, well, at least he's saved. Someone who's not engaging a people at all, has no connection to a body of believers, at least he's saved. What I realize from passages like this is that future and final participation in kingdom things is the tell of a previous participation in a, king, in a kingdom thing. And I mean... I don't mean future or final. I mean future and final participation in kingdom stuff, in the things of God, in the pursuit of Christ, is the tell of whether there was ever really a true engagement in the first place. You want to know if somebody's saved? Or you wonder if you're saved? You wonder if a family member's saved? Don't land in that place. I think he's saved. I already know he's saved. Because time will tell. In the future and in the final 
to their last breath. He who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14 says, We share in Christ. Listen to this. Those who are on flowery beds of ease, listen to this. It says, We share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That doesn't sound like something we can just get on and get a check in the block. Okay, I'm saved. We're square. We are being saved. And the tale of those who are truly His, the tale of the sheep, the wool of the sheep, is that till the very last breath, they are, what's the word here? Firm to the end. We won't get from, up from the table for any circumstances. No, sir, no, ma'am, I'm not leaving this table. The last thing he says there in verse 19, he says, but they went out, those antichrists, those pseudo-Christs, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I got to clarify that us is the church. Us is not just kind of this group of people that throw around the name of Christ and say, yeah, I'm a believing or I'm a believer. Us is the people of God. The people of God is the church. Is it cross point only? I hope not. I hope there are a lot of churches as referred to this us here in this community. But you've got to appreciate that that is the church, the believers, the people of God. There are no free agents. There are no renegades. Remember that word? Rogues. There's no place for the rogue or the renegade. You may wonder why we put such emphasis on membership because identity with a people, accountability to a people matters. That's the us that he's referring to here. They went out from us to make it plain that they were not of us. And now consider this. He says they're going out makes it plain that they were not of us. They're going out is what makes it plain that they're not of us. Otherwise, it's not plain. Because they look just like us. Just like Judas looked like the rest of the, the disciples. He may have been the most trusted of them. He may have been the guy most likely to succeed. But he went out of us. And he proved himself to never be of us. Like Judas among the disciples, those who aren't of us may look a lot like us. They may know the jargon. They may use the lingo. They may talk the talk. They may even show signs of walking the walk. But the clearest indication that they're not of us is that they do not continue with us. Only time will tell what kind of soil receives the seed. Now, I have two things to strongly encourage this people. In light of this picture two things they're not sexy they're not flashy they're not new i know we like new because new must be better here's the first one don't rest easy don't rest easy turn to matthew chapter 26 i want you to see this matthew chapter 26 I shared with you the development of this sermon that would begin with this ominous Judas, this, this bad guy. The guy that we put on the board. And then it may develop or morph into us thinking about other people that we've known who've left the table. Okay, we maybe even put some names there. And then it may morph into even kind of suspicion of others. Like, ooh, do we have any pseudo-Christ among us? Who a year from now may not be among us. Is this guy preaching a pseudo-Christ? Two years from now, 
Will we be talking about how he fell and how he left the faith? Where I wanted this message to go is to consider that what if it's us? To not think about the other Judas or those who have left or the possibility of the rest of the guys on your row, but to think about yourself. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 26. This is a parallel passage of the John chapter 13 evening, the upper room dinner. Listen to what it says. It says, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, so he'd likely just wash their feet. He said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they, okay, we're going to find out if they was just a couple of them. Maybe it was a couple that felt like they had a bad day or they kind of weren't really keen into this Jesus thing. And they were very sorrowful and they began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? Is it I? It goes on to say that Judas asked that question too and that he responded there in verse 25. He says, you have said so. The thing that struck me is that these guys, none of them, well, one of them, Peter, we'll consider him in a moment. One of them seemed to have some pride about this, but all of them reflected some sweet humility in that every single one of them said, is it I? Am I going to betray you? They must have been with Jesus long enough to know that they were capable of anything. They must have been tuned into their own humanity, walking with this incredible light for three years, this light, this truth, this glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It must have revealed much about themselves. And they're asking the question, is it I? Have you ever read about Jesus and thought to, or Judas and thought to yourself, is it I? Maybe we should. Maybe we should ask the question, Could this be me? Do I have any inkling of what I'm capable of? I hope I'm learning. That's why I won't meet with a woman unless Rhonda's up here. That's why my office door is open. That's why if one of you ladies is broken down on the side of the road, I'll stop and call somebody for you, but you're not getting in my car. I don't even know what I'm capable of. I don't even handle the money. I don't want to handle the money. Since I'm paid from this pot, I'm provided for from this pot, I don't want the, the, the temptation because I don't even know what I'm capable of. I hope I'm learning what I'm capable of, but I hope I'm not learning the hard way. I hope I'm learning from experience, from seeing others who have fallen, good, godly, or seemingly godly people who have fallen. Are those who counted money among us, the especially trustworthy, who have fallen? They put me in a place where I'm too asking the question, Is it I? I think fear and trembling, a proper fear and trembling, comes from knowing what you can fall to. Dependence and neediness comes from an awareness of your frailties. Here's a couple of passages I'll share with you. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. Just listen to these couple of passages. I bet you've heard them before. Proverbs chapter 11. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. You remember what Peter said? I will never betray you. Cock-a-doodle-doo, Peter. (laughs) I'll never betray you. You talk about somebody else this morning, Ben. Okay, Peter. Cock-a-doodle-doo. 
Man, I hope of anything. If we walk away with anything this morning, it's a bunch of people that are walking away and going, is it I? Am I capable? Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Romans chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to get there quick. I'm going to share a passage with you from a guy that I'm thinking if there ever was somebody that rated being proud or rated being feeling pretty doggone secure in who he was, hey, man, I got it going on. When I hear this in Romans chapter 17, verse 18, I hear this. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I'm hearing from the, like this superhero Christian. Paul with this big P on his chest. Man, I can do nothing right on my own. I think if Paul had sat at that table, which he wasn't one of the original 12 that sat there, but had he been there, I bet he would have said those words too. Is it I? Share a passage with you and then I'll move on to the next encouragement. This passage is in 2 Corinthians you don't need to turn there unless you want to. Make a note of it. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul writes to this church in Corinth. He says, examine yourselves. He doesn't say, hey man, rest easy. Look in the front of your Bible where it's signed. Where your pastor signed on the day you were baptized. I don't, I don't want to settle you about your concern about the faith. Instead, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He says, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the tests? It sounds like Paul is encouraging us to ask the question, is it I? The second thing, it's not flashy, not sexy. The second thing I'm going to encourage you in first is don't rest easy. The second thing is to just continue. High speed, isn't it? New and spectacular. Continue. Man, my pastor told me to continue today. Boy, that's just revelation. That's all it is. But the character of it is about how it's coming across right now. It's routine. It sounds mundane. It sounds so ordinary. Continue is born out in tomorrow and Thursday and next Sunday and then the month after that in June and in 2009, continue is born out. It was in a passage we just looked at in John chapter, or 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So if you're asking the question, is it I? Which I hope we all are asking. The response will be, I don't know. I'm, but I'm going to continue. There's tomorrow. And there's next month, and I'm just going to cling to him and try and continue because it's sort of like the faith that it's not spectacular, it's not flashy, it's discreet and daily and often mundane. That's why it's not new and flashy. It's just continue. Now here's a medley of continuing. I'll share with you the passage, but don't turn there unless you really need the visual. Acts chapter 14, verse 19 says this, listen. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds to stone, or they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Paul gets stoned. The same guy that said, I, I don't know, 
what I'm capable of. It says, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. <laughs> he got stoned with rocks, and he's standing up, dusting himself off. Okay, let's go to Derby, Barnabas. And listen to what it says. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. And how did they strengthen them? Or how did they strengthen them? By encouraging them to continue in the faith. There it is. Flashy and spectacular, isn't it? Hey guys, just continue. Continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Hang in there. Is that, that's, that's all you got? Yeah, that's all I got. Continue. Here's another passage. Again from Paul. The book of Romans. Chapter 11. Verse 19. He's dealing with the Jew and Gentile thing. The Jews are confused over why, or the Gentiles are confused over why all the Jews didn't follow Christ. And Paul introduces this imagery where some of the branches were broken off the tree, the Jew branches, and the Gentile branches were grafted in. So he's dealing with that. He says, Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that you, the Gentile, might be grafted in. And in that work, note then the kindness and the severity of God, Rome. Severity toward those who have fallen, those branches ripped off, but God's kindness to you, hopefully those grafted in, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. There it is again, flashy and spectacular. Just continue. Here's another one. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, 21 Paul writes to the church at Colossae, and he says, You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body to flesh by, by his death in order to preserve you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. There it is, just plain and simple, continue. That's all you got? Yeah, that's all I got. Just continue. And this is sweet encouragement to me, Paul, to Timothy, a young pastor. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse. All these anti and pseudo-Christs will do their deeds and their terrible work of heartbreak, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Tim... Continue. That's all you got, Paul? Come on, man. I was looking for some high speed. You don't have you just want me to continue? That's all I got for you, Tim. Just continue in what you've heard and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Just plain old continue. The tell of someone, if someone is his or not, is if they bail on God and his people. Pretty simple diagnostic. The tell of someone is his, as if they hang in there. And they can't be ripped from the table until the very end 
they hang. I put out of my side of my notes here, should I share these two observations? I think I'm going to. Y'all, because y'all are attentive. You hung in there. It's almost over. But don't gather your gear. Two observations. This tell, this shows up really obvious in the pure, obvious departure from the faith, where someone leaves the table of the ministry. It's obvious. Most of Greenville, I'm going to tell you, is in that place. Either they were never sowed a proper seed in the first place, or most of Greenville is apostate. Because most of Greenville professes some sort of relationship with Christ, yet they're not at the table. Remember what the us is? The us is the people of God, the faith, the church. (laughs) It's not some imaginary, fictional, kind of ethereal thing that we just imagine. It's a people. It's not a building, but it's a people. We are hopefully one of those us's. But most of Greenville has no use for an us. Figures are, estimates are that 95 to 97% of Greenville are not in a body of believers at all. They may have had some sort of experience in the faith, but remember what the tell for real, genuine experience with the kingdom of God is, is future and final engagement. There's no current engagement. So we're either living in a community that is completely apostate or they never got a good seed in the first place and they never had a true engagement in the first place. I don't know which it is. All I know is they're not at the table. So I realize right now as I'm speaking to some of you that you may be sitting home when the people of God gather a year from now. In five years, trust me, there are people that I have preached to walked with, shepherded, loved, encouraged, who are sitting at home right now and have no use for the body of believers. They bailed on the us. So if a year from now you're sitting at home watching a ball game or something and you recall this sermon, I want you as you sit there to ask yourself the question, am I continuing? If continuing is the tell of being His, am I continuing? Could I even be His? Here's a second related malady that's much less discreet. That's the obvious one. Somebody who just bails on church altogether. They're okay with Jesus, but they have no use for the bride. Here's a second malady that's much less discreet, and this is terminal discontentment with the people of God. Terminal discontentment with the people of God. Ministers do this a lot. The average lifespan for a pastor in this church is about a year and a half to two years. He walks with them for about a year and a half to two years and says, man, the honeymoon's over. I'm done with you guys. I think, I'm gonna go, I think the Lord's calling me to somewhere else. When really, is I'm just sick of you. That, that's what at the heart of it. A terminal discontentment with the people of God. It shows up in ministers, but it also shows up in this this malady of church hopping. If you look back at your history, and you've got three or four years maybe at a church over a pattern where you've hopped from one church to the next, you may fall into this category of being terminally discontent with the people of God and His ministry through imperfect people. When the honeymoon is over, it's off to the next marriage. 
It's like putting in a new stick of bubble gum. So examine yourself. That's a version of leaving the table. I know that many of you have a church background and church history somewhere else at another church. I'm not condemning moving to any church. But I'm saying if there's a pattern, be alarmed, please. The people of God, just plain old simple, continue. I've been wondering why God timed this message when he did. I talked with folks about this recently. I talked with the staff. I talked to some of the elders about this. My observations. I've wondered why God timed this message when he did. And I think his timing is so perfect because what I'm seeing is I'm seeing tired eyes and the thousand-yard stare in many of the faces of this people. I am. It's not every face. But tired eyes and the thousand-yard stare in many of the faces of this people. I'm seeing shepherds out of breath who in January started shepherding maybe for the first time. And here in the end of May, they're going, Dude, I'm spent. (laughs) I'm worn out. This is hard. And I'm seeing wives who've been rooting for him all through the spring, on the winter into the spring, who are also just pretty doggone tired and worn out because they've been stretched like they've never been stretched before and trying to follow a knucklehead's leadership. Like the Bible says. I'm seeing the effects of gas prices. (laughs) I feel it too. Especially you guys that are commuting, man. I see it in your eyes. You're hurting. Gas prices, the cost of living. I'm seeing business dealings just taking its toll on people. I'm seeing the challenges of the ministry take its toll on me. Here's where I really wrestled in these next few minutes, these next few observations, because I'm going to be just especially genuine with you guys. I'm feeling the toll on me, too. This is the hardest thing I've ever done, is leading a people in the faith. I've led Marines in harm's way, where you're getting shot at and you're shooting back. That's easier than this. Because then the, ob- the enemy's obvious. Even though they're, they're, they're sneaky, they don't compare to the wiles of the devil. And when somebody's injured, it's obvious because there's blood going. It's not so obvious when we gather right here. I don't know who's injured. I don't see somebody missing an arm. Leading Marines in harm's way is much easier than leading God's people. It's taken its toll on me in five years. It's taken its toll on my wife, big time. When I hurt with her four other people, Christy hurts. And before long, we're both hurting so much, we got nothing for each other. I got nothing for you, babe. Then there's our kids personal thing we're feeling the toll of their vision we spent Thursday afternoon with blind services and I'll just tell you working with state agencies is no fun because the turnover rate is about as high as you could possibly imagine just about time you get to know somebody think you're making progress it's somebody new and they know nothing in fact not only do they know you not know you they don't know anything about their job And you're wondering, are you getting paid? 
Did you get any training for this? We're fumbling our way through trying to teach them what they'll need to function in a sighted world. All the while, pers- personal note too, all the while we're under the scrutiny of the eye of the critic. And really, oftentimes, in earshot of the mouth of the critic. And man, it just takes its toll. It's enough to make you want to quit. I understand why those guys go a year and a half, two years and say, I think the Lord's calling me somewhere else. I'm going to enter into another honeymoon period. This message is timely for me because I'm encouraged to realize that it's hard to sit at the table of the Lord. Rightly. (laughs) It's hard, hard work. Sometimes we revel in encouraging truth like a kid in his neighbor's pool. You know what I'm talking about? Like an eight-year-old. Hey, man, you want to come over to swim? You watch that eight-year-old just cut loose. Sometimes we revel in the Word like that where it's like, oh, what a sweet ministry this is to me. I'm reveling and bathing in my neighbor's pool. But other times we rage after that truth like a deer pants for water, like some dude in the middle of the desert who thinks there's an oasis up there. He's just tongue hanging out. Sometimes we revel, sometimes we rage at this very same table. And I am so disassembled at this table, but I find that I'm also assembled. While I'm disassembled, I'm assembled. And while a people are built at this table, a people are also purified at this table. And the purification is often painful and difficult. And there's things that are said, things that are done, that just break your heart. I'm realizing, too, that there are no crowds at the table of the Lord. Pentecost, where thousands are believing, was a very rare time. What seems to be at the Lord's table is a committed few who are ready to die daily for a Lord that's worth it. I'm so encouraged by a message like this because it propels me and compels me forward into Monday morning study. It propels me and compels me forward into next Sunday standing up here. A message like this with just good old simple continue propels me and compels me into June and the next five years of ministry. It compels me and propels me into the next 10 years of parenting, the next 13 years of marriage, and the next 34 years of following Christ. I hope and pray And it's not flashy and it's not spectacular. It's just plain old continue. It's a daily question. Is it I? Coupled with a desperate, clinging hope and effort to just plain old continue. We're going to sing one song. Don't move. Hear the words to this song we're about to sing corporately. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. See who the, 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 the verbs, who they come from? This is a song, Godward. Come thy fount. Don't move. Come thy fount of every blessing. God, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. God, teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer. 
Hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Listen to this last verse. O to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter. We don't, you don't know what a fetter is. Fetter is like a rope. It's like a string. It's what you use to tie a horse to a hitching post. And we're asking, God, God, let your grace, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Lord, this song is basically saying, Lord, tie me to the table. Fetter me to the table. Lord, chain me to the table. Lord, super glue me to the table. Bungee cord me. Whatever it takes, tape me to the table. Please bind my wandering heart to thee because I'm prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Is it I? Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let me pray. Lord, oh, teach us to continue. Teach us to continue when we rage and not to just live from one revel to the next. Teach us to be purified in the raging. Lord, we confess like the tone of this song that we need you to fetter us to the table. We need to be tied to it, chained to it, bungee corded, taped to it because our hearts wander. Lord, I pray that five years, ten years, twenty years from now, if you haven't returned, that unless someone dies or unless they have to move due to some sort of job situation, even then, I pray that they're still at the table, a good, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, word-feasting, word-exposing table that's not making much of man like a pseudo-Christ. Lord, we beg for that. I beg for this people in this room that are in earshot of this prayer that they will be fettered to the table and bound. I pray that for myself. I pray that for my Christy, for my Evan, for my Luke, and for my Daniel. Bind us to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Let's worship in song.